Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. And this is a special edition of Stuff You Should Know because Jerry is transmogrified into guest producer Noel. <laughs> Which is requires quite a bit of alchemy. It does. You know? And a little bit of alcohol. Yeah. And some, uh, and like a magnificent brown bearded chia, is chia pet. Nice. <laughs> There's a woodchuck waving from that. <laughs> Looking good, Noel. Yeah, Jerry's gone on a top secret mission. Can't talk about it. That's what makes it top secret. You're talking about it right now. But she's coming back at some point, don't worry. Yeah. She's not left us forever. No, this is a stint by guest producer Noel. We'll have to make a sweep out of it. Yeah. Uh, Noel produced shows you should know. Summer of Sam, mm-hmm. Death Sweet, Noel Stint. Noel Stint. <laughs> that sounds gross. <laughs> uh, how you doing, man? I'm great. I'm so used to reading ads these days that like, I just panicked, like I lost my place. And then I was like, oh yeah, it's the actual podcast. I can just ramble and stall <laughs> as long as I need to. Yeah. You remember this from your being a kid? Was this in your wheelhouse, the Philadelphia uh, Experiment? The movie was. Watched it last night. Sure. Oh, did you really? Yes. Wow. It is basically, I mean, the plot makes sense, but it's like a 15-minute plot. Yeah. They manage a lot of chasing in yeah, they to, really, to really draw it out. They really gussy. Yeah, they drew it out. But <laughs> the see. idea behind it, especially when, let's see, 1984, I was eight. Yeah. And I was, this is about the time where I'm like, I'm going to Duke University to study parapsychology when I get older. When you were eight? Yeah. I didn't even know what college was when I was eight. Definitely. That was in my wheelhouse. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, so this was like right up my alley. Yeah. And now that I, I watch it as a child, I'm like, man, I was an idiot when I was eight. Yeah. But it was pretty cool. The, the special effects are like 80s-rific. Oh, yes. They do not hold up. No. But I mean, if you're a fan of Tron... You're gonna sure. or Videodrome, <laughs> yeah. You're gonna love this movie, uh, starring the great Michael Pere. Yes, and um, RoboCop's partner. Yeah, Nancy Allen. Mm-hmm. Uh, was she? Who? Was, what else was she in? Famously, she was in a bunch of '80s movies. Uh, yeah, she was big back then. What was her big one though? Or was she always like co-starring the female lead? I think. Yeah, I don't think she was ever like the lead in a movie. Huh. They didn't make movies with female leads in the 80s. Uh, I can't remember in this context, are we allowed to say female or should it be the girl lead? It's a female lead, They right? didn't They didn't make leads with uh, women uh, as the lead <laughs> in the 80s. They're all just there to prop up the dudes. Right. Which uh, is uh, although, still how well, it is. Working Girl, that was in the 80s. Good point. Nine to five. Three ladies. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll take it back. Okay. Few and far between. What I'm, I'm trying to lobby for... Gender equality in Hollywood. Yeah. And, and, well, you should. And you're like, no, look at nine to five. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. It's, I mean, there were some. Yeah, yeah, you're but right. But yeah, you, I, I agree with you. I don't mean to argue. You're right. It's few, they were few <laughs> and far between. That's what you call a trap. What about Barbarella? Yeah, that was what, 70s or was it 60s? I think the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. Jane Fonda. Well, just like the makers of the Philadelphia Experiment, you and I know how to draw out a 15-minute plot. <laughs> hey, also I wanted to point out Michael Pere disappeared in Eddie and the Cruisers. Oh, is it? Was he in that? He was Eddie. Was the was that based on Bruce Springsteen or something like that? <laughs> no. Was it based on any real life band? No. Oh. I mean, it, it it echoed. He was he was Springsteen esque. Right. 
But it wasn't like, you know, I think they were just, I think the writer was like, who do I like? Eh, I like Springsteen. Yeah. So let's get John Caffrey to, to sing like Springsteen mm-hmm. and put Michael Paré to lip sync. Wow, that's a... Eddie. That's... <laughs> That's 80s riffic too. And I saw John Cafferty in concert in the 80s. That's how. What else is he in? No, he was the band. He was the real band. John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown band. Okay. They sang those songs for real. And I saw them in concert at Six Flags. Wow. How about that? And they've now become the Zach Brown band. <laughs> That's right. Right. Who looks like Noel. <laughs> Full circle. Full circle. We just did it. Can we be done now? Yep. <laughs> so the Philadelphia Experiment. I guess it was right up Michael Perry's um, alley because it echoed real life too. In That's a way. Right. In a way. Sure. Uh, the makers went back and read a couple of books that purported to be nonfiction accounts of this incredible experiment carried out by the, the Navy. So incredible. And we should probably, let's let's describe the experiment to begin with, right? Uh, experiments, we should say. Yeah, that's true. Uh, this article gets it wrong. Yeah. On how stuff works. Yeah, there were two separate things, uh, both involving the uh, a destroyer ship called the USS Eldridge, recently commissioned. Uh, summer of 1943 is when it began. July, I think. And what supposedly happened was that there was um, this ship, and there was a big secret Navy experiment mm-hmm. that whose what's aim was to make the ship disappear. Yeah, not just. To like radar something like that, but sure. if there was a guy with a periscope, he would look right past the ship because it had been made invisible. Essentially invisible. And then the story goes that that was successful. It was a successful experiment that was carried out. Yeah, it disappeared in full view in broad daylight. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And from the was it the Philadelphia shipyard? Yep. And then reappeared. Uh, there was a big glow. Yeah. And then it reappeared, and all the the sailors aboard. We're in bad shape. So did that take place in July or was that? That took place in July. Okay. Well, okay. Then it happened again in October when the second experiment? Yeah. Then they retried the experiment. Supposedly the ship disappeared and popped up in Virginia. Norfolk, Virginia. And then then reappeared 10 minutes prior. So it time traveled back 10 minutes in Phil, uh, to Philadelphia again. Right. And Which again, is, the sailors were in bad shape. Even by teleportation standards that's impossible <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean <laughs> yeah and supposedly these uh the shipmen were um uh seamen were were some were caught like in the metal of the ship right like, and crazed and crazy right so basically the implication is is that they had been some sort of or in some fashion molecularly disintegrated yes. along with the ship and then when it was brought back together the coordinates were maybe off slightly right maybe the ship and the people were where they were 10 minutes earlier. Right. And things just went a little haywire. Like, oh, my upper half's on the Lido deck and my lower half's on the, uh, what were the other decks on the low? The, the, uh, man, that's the only deck I know. The party deck. The tango deck? Sure. <laughs> the tango deck. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, um, the, and I'm still alive and yeah. I've also gone mad because my brain didn't configure back correctly either. Yes, and this was all possible thanks to um, Albert Einstein working with the Navy yep. and teaching them all his little tricks on how you can make ships disappear in time travel. Specifically, the theory is that, um, or the rumor, the conjecture, the conspiracy theory, is that um, Albert Einstein figured out 
the unified field theory. Which is not true. He did not. Basically, the theory of everything. No, it frustrated him for his whole life. Um, there's this idea in physics that there's p- possibly one explanation for the behavior of everything in the universe. Yeah. Right now, we've got a pretty good theory. I think the theory of special relativity ties in three of the fundamental forces in the universe. Yeah. But gravity is this outlier that can't be tied in through physics formulas. And they think that there's some way of understanding things to where everything ties together. And as I think Michio Kaku famously put it, um, he said that what what they're searching for with a unified field theory is with a uh, formula an inch long, yeah. you'll be able to read God's mind. Man. So the idea is that that Einstein came up with this unified th- field theory. Yeah. Again, not true. And that it was used to understand how to teleport things. So they used this understanding to carry out an experiment with a bunch of Navy seamen on a destroyer yeah. in broad daylight. Because you can, you can imagine the advantage to be able to make your ship invisible. Not only that, if you could figure out how to teleport it. Like, you're, you're done, dude. No more war, because you would win them all, yeah. and the rest of the world would just cower at your invisible feet. Yeah, you'd just suddenly pop up behind your enemy, yeah. put him in a full <laughs> Nelson, and be like, you give, you give. And you'd be like, I give. And that's it. You yeah. just let him go and be like, that's right, and you teleport out of there. You see how easily that could happen? <laughs> Nazi? Unified field theory. <laughs> all right, so the Philadelphia experiment never happened like that, at least. What? We'll go ahead and... Not give any credence to the conspiracy theorists out there, although we'll probably get a couple of people to email in. Oh, man, this is this is like a nucleus of conspiracy theory. It ties in UFOs. Sure. Ties in theoretical physics. Yep. The U.S. government, of course. Yep. Uh, ginormous cover up. Yeah. Um, it, it ties in all these different things. And it's really, really interesting. If you go read this stuff, it's 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 to me, it's more interesting than just. Just UFO conspiracy theory. You're just government cover-up conspiracy theory. Yeah. It's like a clearinghouse of conspiracy theories all tied up into one package uh, on the secret experiment that, if you listen to the Navy's official line, never took place. There never was a Philadelphia experiment. Right. There never was. It was also known as Project Rainbow. There was never a Project Rainbow. No. Um, it just didn't happen. The whole thing was made up out of whole cloth, apparently, by a guy named uh, Carlos M. Allende. Yeah, and there were there's a couple of hinky details. We'll go over why this thing has survived uh, a little bit later, but there are a few hinky details, not that make it believable, but that just have fueled the fire over the years. Yeah. And uh, let's let's take a break right here, Chuck, because I'm getting a little overexcited. Okay, just put this under your tongue; you'll be fine. Okay. All right, wake up, buddy. (laughs) What? (laughs) We're back. Oh, okay. How much time has passed in your mind? Millions of years. No, it's only been about three hours. Oh, okay. Do you feel rested? I do feel very refreshed. Good. Well, we can continue. So uh, you teased a man named, uh, well, he had some different names. Carl M. Allen, or under his pseudonym, Carlos Miguel uh, Allende. Yeah. (laughs) 
He's like, yeah, hey, let me throw a DE on the end. I'll sound mysterious. Yeah, an OS <laughs> and a DE. So uh, in 1956, uh, I was going to get in the Wayback Machine, but I don't think we should even bother for this. No, this actually proves <laughs> there is no Wayback Machine. That's right. So in 1956, in real time, uh, Allende sent um, a letter, and he would go on to send about 50 more letters to an author named Morris Jessup, mm-hmm. who wrote a book a year earlier called The Case for the UFO. Yes, which you can find on the podcast page for this episode. Yeah, and he's a he was an author. He's like a legit dude that wrote a bunch of books. I mean, mm, I well, I mean, if he's legit. <laughs> if I don't mean were... legit as in. Uh, like he proved any science behind UFOs. Right, right. But he, he was, a, he, he authored books for real. Yes. He right. wasn't printing man, he wasn't just publishing manifestos online. And he was a, um, a conspiratorially minded investigator. Yeah. But if you read like his writing, it was just nothing but conjecture. Sure. N- nothing. There was nothing in it but conjecture oh, presented yeah. as fact. Yeah. And he even says like these are, uh, there are three basic proven facts about this. And then here's some more facts. And it's like, <laughs> no, these yeah. aren't facts at all. But it's really fascinating stuff. Maybe he doesn't know what facts are. <laughs> Maybe so. Uh, so he got these letters. And um, in these letters, uh, at first there were some attacks on him and from uh, from Alan saying, you don't know what you're talking about, man. You're getting this unified field theory all wrong. And I know because Einstein spent several weeks with me teaching me this stuff himself. Yeah, and not only that. So it's like, Cuckoo pot writes crackpot. Right. And he, he was saying, like, I can prove that that unified field theory has been mastered by describing this experiment that took place in Philadelphia in 1943 concerning one U.S. destroyer called the USS Eldridge. Yes. And he said, I know this because I was there, buddy. I was on a ship in that harbor and there were other ships in the harbor that Seems to be the only part that's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a place where ships were being outfitted yeah, like throughout the summer and fall. Yeah. It was the war. That's right. So he claimed that he was on one of these ships. He said, I witnessed this uh, in person. I saw this green glow. I saw this thing disappear. Not only that, he, could, come see, back. he could see the, the field that was created by this this um, experiment. Yeah, the green glow. And he stuck his arm into it. He was that close. Stuff of movies, right? Stuff of <laughs> 1980s B-movies. Yeah. Uh, so he sends these letters and... He sends like 50 of them. Yeah. And Jessup said, uh, you know what? Let me investigate this a little bit because I'm a crackpot too. I, I get where you're coming from. Yeah. So let me just check into this. <laughs> this, little... <laughs> is, this is right up my alley. Yeah. Thank you for these. Uh, let me look into this a little bit and... He basically gave up because the, the dude could produce. He asked him for some evidence or names, anything, Dates. and he had nothing. He didn't. He just said, "Here's the story, and it's fact." And he goes, um, "Carlos Allende, who by then I think had dropped the pseudonym, right, to Carl Allen." Who knows? He might have called himself Big Bird right. at that point. So he was, and he was a very disturbed man. Yeah, I'm joking, but yeah, he he had mental problems. He did. Um, but if you if you research him. And you research even skeptics of the Philadelphia experiment. Like the stuff he was coming up with was really interesting stuff. Yeah, he was good, a good writer. But he was a huge confabulator as well. Sure. So um, he's saying all this as, as fact, and he uh, he he's saying I don't know what the dates were, I don't know the people's names or anything like that. But perhaps if I were put under narco hypnosis, I would remember all this stuff. 
So you got any drugs? Yeah. And about this time, uh, Jessup said, I'm done with this, right? He had yeah. actually moved on because apparently the government had directly addressed UFO rumors. And no, Jessup didn't do that. I'm sorry. Another guy did. Oh, okay. Um, who was interested in researching, um, Allende. But I'm sure Jessup was like, I got to get back to my serious work investigating he, he, UFOs. He did. Yeah. But then something truly bizarre happened. And this did happen. He got a, a knock on his door and two researchers from the Office of Naval Research who would have been carrying out experiments like this yeah, said, theory, sure. hey, have you ever heard of a guy named Carlos Allende? And you probably could have picked uh, M.K. Jessup off the floor. I would imagine so. Because, I mean, yeah, he was like, it's all true. Yeah, man. exactly. <laughs> and he said, come in, come in, please have some tea, have some opiates. Uh, it was 1957 at this point, and they said, you know what, we got a package a year ago, um, and it had a copy of your book, my friend, on um, the UFOs, mm-hmm. and it was... Um, the it case was, for UFOs. Yeah, it was annotated very heavily... By three people. Well, by by three sets of ink and three types of handwriting, right. which were all clearly uh, from Carl Allen. Well, they were to M.K. Jessup, who corresponded with Carl Allen for... Well, over 50 letters, right? Yeah, he said, I'm not fooled. This guy, Jemmy, J-E-M-I. Who may have been an alien. It's it's Carl Allen, and Mr. A and Mr. B are both Carl Allen. Right. They're, they're all Carl Allen. But regardless of whether they were all one dude, the, the annotations had fascinated these two Navy researchers enough that they uh, supposedly, as far as the Office of Naval Research officially says, they took it upon themselves and paid out of their own pockets and I guess took vacation time to go find uh, M.K. Jessup. Yeah, I haven't found – I saw a bunch of conflicting reports on that, whether or not – and this is what conspiracy theorists will point to, that mm-hmm. either it was official business or they did it on their own. Right. Either way, they say that that means something. And I've heard it explained away as it was just something – on their list that they eventually had to get to. That seems like a terrible explanation. I think this adds like a real wrinkle to the story, whether purposefully or it's just something that can't be very easily explained away. Maybe it is. It was just these guys were really interested in this. Maybe they were into UFO stuff or whatever. Maybe. It doesn't matter. The fact that those two guys showed up gives this thing legs for miles. Sure. You know? And it's just awesome that that happened because that has kept this thing alive in part. Yeah, and the box came to them uh, marked Happy Easter, which I thought was kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it had weird punctuation and capitalizations, all all the marks of a madman. Right. Um, But, again, like the stuff he was saying was uh, – it was – curiosity arousing in these guys. And they actually took – and, again, supposedly paid for out of their own pocket – the um, annotated version of the case for UFOs and published it with the annotations. Uh, they had a, a contractor, a military contractor called Vero Technologies, I think, and um, had them publish it, which yeah. is weird, especially if they were doing it out of their own pocket. But it was only again, 127 copies. I imagine it didn't I, cost that much. I saw 25 even, and they were like spiral bound. So it wasn't anything yeah. fancy. I read a lot of this, and it's um, it, it's... You know, it's like it's really out there. Yeah. You know, sure. But I imagine if you're a UFO enthusiast, it might interest you. I mean, if you read um, Morris Jessup's stuff, it's out there, too. 
Well, imagine I, reading I, that with the annotation from right. this other dude. Yeah, I was gonna say, I get the impression that uh, was Carlos Allende stuff is even more out there. Yeah, you can get online. It's on. Uh, there's PDFs of it if you want to. Oh, the Vero. One? Yeah, oh, yeah. But supposedly there's a lot of forged copies as well. Oh, really? In circulation, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. This seemed real. Huh. Um, why would someone take the time to forge a copy of the Crackpot Manifesto? That's the question we should all be asking ourselves. <laughs> so um, Jessup's story uh, ends just a couple of years later. He was uh, down on his luck, and he got injured really badly in a car accident, had a bad breakup with his wife. And he killed himself. He he put a hose from his uh, car exhaust into his window. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is one of the other reasons that conspiracy theory, anytime there's oh, a, yeah. a suicide yeah. and there's the government involved, it's pretty easy to say, he didn't kill himself. The government killed him. Right. It's made all the more sp- uh, suspicious, though, because um, uh, supposedly he that was the day that he was to meet a friend yeah. who he had said he had told. I've made a breakthrough in the Philadelphia experiment case. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he turns up dead of a suicide. Yeah. So, well, I mean, that and the ONR guy showing up at his door definitely has kept this thing alive. It has. Uh, um, supposedly his friends came out and said, no, he was deeply depressed and he had talked of suicide in the months before he committed suicide. Yeah. But then I'm sure conspiracy theorists will say, they paid them off, man. Right. Those people said, uh, you can let my family go now, maybe. <laughs> exactly. Do what you said. And the uh, Eldridge um, had a pretty, uh, well, it, it didn't go on to like great things. It was uh, sold to Greece or transferred to Greece, renamed the H.S. Leon, um, used in exercises and then sold for scrap metal in the 1990s. Yep. So no big deal with the boat, right? No bigs. So uh, we'll take another little break here and we'll come back and we'll talk about what really happened in the Philadelphia shipyard that day. All right. What really happened, Josh? Nothing. <laughs> That's supposedly what really happened. Apparently on that day in the naval shipyard, uh, I guess either July or October. But July, I think, is the one that people typically, if they just think it was a one-day thing rather than two separate experiments, it's usually July that they point to, which they did in this article, too. Yeah. On that particular day, um, the USS Eldridge wasn't even in Philadelphia. Yeah, this is the part I don't understand. It was in Brooklyn. Yeah. So here's the thing. This is that, that revelation came out in 1999. We'll get to that in a minute. Prior to this, there is a researcher. He's an astrophysicist and ufologist named Jacques Jacques F. Vallée, <laughs> and he was actually the inspiration for the uh, ufologist Frenchman character in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah, and he was also like a venture capitalist. He's a pretty sharp dude. He just had some uh, unusual interests, right? Yes. But one of the things that he dedicated himself to was disproving the Philadelphia experiment, proving that it was a hoax. He was a skeptic, right? Yes. In some manner, he was a skeptic. Yeah. So he wrote a paper, and um, in the paper, he invited people to uh, to reach out to him if they had further information about the Philadelphia experiment. And as a result, allegedly, he was contacted in 1994 by a guy named uh, Edward Dugin, or Dudgeon. 
Let's say dudgeon. It's a little, little more pleasant than dudgeon. I bet his friend called him the dungeon. Yeah, I'll bet. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I would have called him. Yeah. So, yeah, he responded. The paper was called Anatomy of a Hoax, colon, The Philadelphia Experiment 50 Years Later in the Journal of Scientific Exploration. And uh, Dudgeon got in touch and said, you know what? I was in the Navy from 42 to 45. I was on that boat. And uh, I can explain what happened. Yeah. Which is pretty exciting. Well, he was he was know. on the Angstrom, which was there at the same time. Oh, I thought he was on the actual boat. No, no he was an electrician on the Angstrom. Gotcha. But he said he was fully aware of all of the electrical components on the Angstrom and on the Eldridge. Yeah, because they all party together. Sure, exactly. That would that actually comes <laughs> yeah. comes up later. Um, so he he was saying he. He basically had a pat and completely sensible and reasonable answer for every single part of the Philadelphia experiment. For example, part of the Philadelphia experiment legend is that a brawl broke out in a bar following the experiment, and two of the sailors on board the Eldridge suddenly disappeared. They vanished. Yes. Well, um, Dugin, Dugin says, I was one of those guys. I actually faked my age on my enlistment page paper. So I was underage and shouldn't have been yeah. in the bar. And the bar, the, the bartender, um, took pity on me and another underage dude and shoot us out the back door and then pretended that, uh, she'd never seen us. So they disappeared. They disappeared. Exactly. <laughs> out the back door. Another one, he says, um, he, well, he explains the whole thing basically, right? He yeah. says there was no experiment like that, but they were doing something that might have seemed freaky to the uninitiated and that was degaussing the, the ships. Yeah. At the time, uh, Germany and I guess everyone else really in the Navy, in the navies around the world, uh, they had magnetic, uh, mines, sea mines, right. which would, uh, find your boat and, you know, go, ooh, that's metal. Let me go stick on that thing and blow up. Yeah. And torpedoes that were magnetic seeking too. Yeah. And they thought, you know what? Let's come up with a way to make our ship hulls and uh, our metal parts, um, non-magnetic to these, to these, uh, obstacles. Right. Which is an established, um, project, I guess. Or an established, what's the word I'm looking for? Process. Sure. So I was close with projects. Yeah, it was a real thing. Yeah. It's called degaussing. Uh, and it basically either changes or um, gets rid of the magnetism of a, of something that was formerly magnetic, like yeah. a ship's hull. It does not make it invisible no, it to doesn't. radar or otherwise. But it probably looks pretty weird, right? So they wrapped the ships in hundreds and hundreds of meters of cable. Um, and then ran a really high voltage electrical charge through it. And supposedly this would demagnetize the ships, which really came in handy because at the time, um, just outside of, um, America's coastal waters was called the graveyard of the Atlantic. Yeah. Cause German U boats were running the show out there at this time. Yeah. And as we learned in our, uh, did Nazis invade Florida? Mm-hmm. They sometimes were parked right off the coast. Exactly. So they were taking out our destroyers and our cruisers and our battleships. So this was a, this is a big deal to be able to do that kind of thing. Although it, it, and it was classified stuff. It wasn't experimentation in anything that hadn't been proven before. It was like, yeah, we're, we're just demagnetizing our battleships. Yeah. They could have had a big sign up said degaussing at work. Stand back. Yeah. It was no big super secret thing. Right. But if you're a Nazi, don't read this sign. <laughs> right. Um, the other thing that uh, Dudgeon addressed was the, the concept that the Eldridge disappeared from the Philadelphia shipyard, reappeared in Norfolk, 
and then reappeared back in Philadelphia. Well, that happened, but it just went there and then came back. Right, but it, it didn't happen in like five minutes or ten minutes or thirty seconds. No. But, again, he points out, like, if you weren't really, if you were just casually paying attention, you might have seen the uh, the Eldridge in Philadelphia that night and then noticed it was missing late at night and then noticed it was back in the morning. Yeah, which would seem impossible because that was supposedly a two-day trip. Yeah, two days, including there and back. Yeah. The round trip was two days up the, up the coast. But apparently the Navy had a canal that they used. Um, I think the Delaware-Chesapeake Canal, that only the military could use, and they could make that round trip in six hours. Yeah, so in other words, it's easily explainable that it just simply, uh, I keep wanting to say sailed, but it's not sailing. I think they still call it that. Do they? Set sail, yeah. Okay. Ship out. Yeah, it shipped out and took sh- off. shipped back right. in a regular amount of time. Right. And it just became part of the lore. Yeah. And I mean, you can even tack on a few hours there. Apparently, Norfolk was when they, where they outfitted it with, with their explosives. And apparently, they could load a, a battleship in four hours. Yeah. So even taking that into account, it's still 10 hours. If it shipped out at 11 p.m., which is what uh, uh, Dugin says, right? Dugin? I think he went with Dugin. Yeah. Um, he... Uh, he says that it shipped out at 11, it'd still be back by 9 a.m. Yeah. So, again, if you're just casually paying attention, what seems pretty mysterious really took on legs over time. It's basically like a game of telephone, like any conspiracy theory. Sure. Maybe there's a kernel of truth that got exaggerated by some drunken sailors, and then, bam, it, it gets shrunk down to 10 seconds through a teleportation experiment. Well, and these sailors, the drunken sailors, supposedly could have been overheard saying things like, you know, they're going to make our ship disappear. They're going to make us invisible. When, in fact, what they were saying is they're going to make it more or less invisible to these minds. Right. Got all twisted around. It wasn't literally invisible. Yeah. And so there were apparently tons of um, merchant seamen around the area as well. Yes. So, again, this would have been classified stuff. If there had been loose li- lips, which sink ships. They do. Um and somebody had said, like, we're going to make it invisible, like you said, they would have picked up on that. Maybe they were the ones who were um, just casually paying attention to the to the Eldridge here or there, and it just seemed to disappear and reappear. Yeah. Um, and there's this guy named uh, Robert Gorman, and he, um, in a 1980 Fate magazine article, uh, wrote about tracking down Carlos Allende. He was from the same hometown as yeah. him and it turned out that he w- already knew the guy's father he just didn't realize that he was carlos allende's father or carl allen's father your old man allen's son yeah pretty much <laughs> yeah um and he managed to interview the family and get a, a pretty good picture of the guy um but one of the things that he found was carl allen's merchant seaman papers yeah so it's entirely possible he was there around the time or if he wasn't there at the time um, he may have been, he may have known somebody who was there at the time. I could totally see him have been there and that's probably how he got the idea to cook it up. Right. Okay. I believe all that. Yeah. And again, uh, all of this lands squarely on the desk of Carl Allen because no one, no one talked about the Philadelphia experiment. It was never, those words were never put together until he, his first letter to Morris Jessup, right? So it appears to have been totally fabricated by him. Yeah, and um, 
after the movie came out, people started coming out of the woodwork. <laughs> this guy. Including a dude named Alfred uh, Bialik. Have you who, been to his website? Uh, oh, yeah. He's he's something else. He made a, a video uh, called uh, The Philadelphia Experiment Part 1, Crossroads of History. And he claims that he was a physicist on board the Eldridge, uh, and he was a part of the team. And not only that, he says he time-traveled uh, in 1943, all the way to 1983, mm-hmm. during the experiment to tell his story. This sounds extremely close to the plot of the Philadelphia <laughs> Experiment movie. Yeah, and the, and sure. I'm Except sure. it was a little different. <laughs> In the movie, he travels from 1943 to 1984. Ooh. Um, we, we shouldn't mock this guy. <laughs> it's wow. a fascinating website. Yeah. But he puts himself squarely at the, the, um, the, center of the Philadelphia experiment, and he also says that he was part of the Montauk Project. Yeah, which they're sort of tied together somehow. Yeah, we well... We should do one on that at some point. Somehow... Debunking things. This guy this guy wrote a book where he just basically made this stuff up out of whole cloth. Yeah. He says that the book, whether you take it as science fact or science fiction, you're in for a really great story, um, even though it's, it's basically loaded with soft facts. This, this is the author in the preface, right? Yeah. But basically, it's this extension that, like, the, the Philadelphia experiment was wildly successful. And from that, we learned all sorts of things, like getting in touch with extraterrestrials, being able to teleport everywhere, um, just doing all sorts of really interesting things. Basically, anything you can possibly think of that a conspiracy theorist would enjoy sure. is crammed into this book, and it's, it's given, um, a bit of, gravitas by associating it with the Philadelphia experiment, <laughs> you know? Yeah. In some quarters, man. In some quarters. <laughs> that, that definitely gives some gravitas. Uh, this green glow has been explained away by most people as uh, maybe an electrical storm or St. Elmo's fire. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, you know, maybe just another part of this story that people took and ran with it. Or maybe it was nothing at all. Uh, yes. Um, it also could have been the Office of Naval Research put out a fact sheet on what they understand about the Philadelphia experiment. And they said um, it's possible another origin or the origin of that specifically was experiments with the USS Timmerman later on after the war in the 50s. Yeah. Where they tried to use a small generator that was higher power than the generator that was currently on board. And it actually caused coronal discharge with a glow. Yeah. Um, and they said that no one was injured, no one was enmeshed into the ship. No. It was just a glow was created, which is what you'd expect from a very strong electrical field, right? Yeah. So they think possibly that combined with um, the degaussing stuff they were doing during World War II came together um, and helped this legend take off. But what they say also, though, and what was supported by this um, reunion of USS Eldridge sailors in 1999 is that even the guy who debunked and discredited everything that Carlos Allende said, um, Dudgeon, he, he was full of it, too, apparently. Yeah. Because the USS Eldridge wasn't in Philadelphia then. It was in Brooklyn. Yeah, they got together in Atlantic City, and I read an article on this meeting, and they, they had a good laugh and said that one of them uh, even has something about it on his license plate, just so people like ask him about it. And a few of them said they would pull people's legs and say, like, oh, no, I disappeared and my hand was caught in the ship. And mm-hmm. then they would say, no, none yeah. of that happened. Yeah. But uh, they said that it was in Brooklyn and the ship's log uh, confirms that. So um, apparently it wasn't even in that shipyard that day at all. Right. 
So that's that's the only part where I'm like, well, wait a minute. How could they completely invent that it was even in the shipyard? Why wouldn't they just use a ship that was there? Because this you know, guy, this it would guy, give it a little more credence if there was at least a ship there. But that's what I'm saying. Like um, Carl Allen, he made, he said all this. He was the one who just came up with it from the beginning. Yeah, but it, it, I don't know. It uh, just seems a little weird that he he didn't care at all about making it believable by picking a boat that was actually there. Well, that's what I'm saying. He may have been there at the time. He may have known that the Eldridge was there and just fudged the date because he couldn't remember because this is like 12 years later. Over yeah. 13 years after the fact. So you know what I mean? Bad memory. Right. <laughs> so maybe he just got the date wrong and the thing really did happen. And then the ONR would be like, oh, that experience. Yeah, oh, yeah, we teleported a battleship. <laughs> you just got the date wrong. So we've mentioned quite a few things here that why this thing has lived on through the years. Um, there, uh, that uh, Jacques Vallée theorizes that, you know, anytime you have like a movie made about it, or any kind of imagery, whether it's a photo of the Loch Ness Monster mm-hmm. to uh, a photo of the Montauk Monster, people are going to have something physical to point to and say, look, they made this movie. And that's when people started coming out of the woodwork was after the movie, saying, oh, yeah, I was there. I remember that now. Michael Pere just reminded me <laughs> of yeah. this thing that happened. He also, his, my favorite thing on his website is that um, he met the person that he later realized was the actor Mark Hamill. In Hawaii yeah. in 1956, but Mark Hamill would have been five at the time. Well, did he say he was a little nice little kid? I don't think he was a kid. <laughs> he said he's a full-grown adult. Interesting. Uh, what else? The um, the fact that it's the the federal government, of course, and the and the military. You know, people are going to run with that stuff. Which I mean, that's the military's fault. I oh, remember. Well, yeah, sure. They did secret experiments. Still do. Tons of them. Yeah. Back in 1993, some stuff that got declassified and it really opened people's eyes to the fact that the government and the military experimented on un, uninformed and unwitting subjects, not just in the, in its, um, ranks, but also in the general public. Yeah. So yeah, it's totally uh, the idea that the military would do this, um, with its own people on board? Yeah, that's believable. Probably the most believable part of the whole thing. Agreed. Uh, and also just um, throw Albert Einstein in there, throw in uh, secret scientific theories uh, that haven't been proven, and it's just uh, ripe for the picking yeah. when it comes to conspiracies. Yeah. And the suicide, of course, like it, we mentioned earlier. That definitely doesn't help. It did not help the case any. But um, this is one that I... I I had a hard time finding people that still believe this. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people like it aren't aware of it even. Except for the movie. You know what else helped it get legs? There was a book in 1979, and it was called um, The Philadelphia Experiment, colon, Project Invisibility. And it was reprinted in uh, in excerpts in papers around the country as, as fact or yeah. nonfiction in 1979. Does not help doesn't help things, you know? I personally, with all conspiracy theories, I just I, I enjoy reading this stuff. I think it's fun and funny sure. and yeah. uh, interesting. I don't there aren't any that I really believe in, but um, I do think it's funny when people get all up on their hackles and write in that you know you that's guys are making fun a- of this stuff and it's you know you don't know could it- be real. Well, that's the other thing, man. I'm I'm glad you brought this up because they're like the. Just being like, no, this is not possible. That's stupid. Stop thinking stuff like that. It's like, no, this is 
at the very least, people using their imaginations and exercising it in ways that I don't typically do. Sure. And so it is nice to come kind of visit it and check it out and and read it, you know? Yeah, although I claim to have seen a ghost, so what do I know? Exactly. Although, I have to say, probably the best excuse against this, there are two things that just say, just on its face, this isn't right. One, this happened 70 years ago, and if the military successfully transported a battleship, we would know about t- teleportation by by now. Yeah, they'd be doing it all over the place. Exactly. The second thing was a quote from Robert Gorman, the guy who tracked down Carl Allen in that 1980 Fate uh, magazine article. He wrote, if we are to believe Carl Allen, our naval hierarchy abandoned sanity and historical precedent by conducting an experiment of enormous importance in broad daylight using a badly needed destroyer escort vessel. Yeah. I think that kind of sums it up nicely. Agreed. But go forth and read about the Philadelphia Experiment because it is interesting stuff. Watch the movie. Meh. <laughs> Why not? Is uh, it on Netflix? No, it's on YouTube. <laughs> you watched it on YouTube? Yeah. I can't believe you made it through it. I did. I'm telling you, like, I mean, I was working, too. I had two, like, windows open, but... Okay, there you um, go. It was fine. Yeah. It was fine. It's it was- as believable as Tron. That's Josh's review. <laughs> uh, let's see. If you want to know more about the Philadelphia Experiment, you don't have anything else, right? No, sir. Uh, you can type those words in the search bar at How Stuff Works. And since Chuck said Tron, it's time for listener mail. I'm going to call this uh, email from a up-and-coming podcaster and Georgia Bulldog. Nice. Hey, guys. My name is Bailey. I'm a junior mass media arts and theater student at good old UGA. Go dogs, woof woof. Uh, my professional identity aside, I'm also a longtime listener and lover of you guys. I listened to my first episode on the bus home from seventh grade. That's so <laughs> wow. I'm pretty sure it was an episode on brainwashing. So she's in college now. Uh, I mainly listen to y'all as I'm working on my on-campus job, uh, bus driving. Did you ever take the buses in Athens, the student bus? I was so crippled with social anxiety that if I couldn't find a parking space, I would just skip class because I didn't want to get on the bus. <laughs> you had social anxiety? Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Like, didn't want to get to know anyone or you just... Uh... I just couldn't bear being around peers at that age. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, it, the buses were always a little scary because it was like, here's a 40-foot long bus full of students and it's driven, driven by a 19-year-old. By a student. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, scary for me for different reasons, but I can imagine it was scary for that reason, too. Yeah, I took him a few times. I mainly walked. Um, okay, where was I? Bus driving. So my passengers have the honor of listening to you as well. Oh, I guess she plays it out loud. That's nice. That is nice. That's uh, the party bus right there. <laughs> I guess so. The other day I was driving, I realized it's my destiny to produce and host a podcast on campus. Uh, we don't really have anything like that, so I'm excited about it. My idea is to have me and another host be constants on the show and every week bring in a different UGA professor or Athens professional or general awesome person to talk about the one thing in their field that fascinates them the most for about 30 minutes. Uh, It would include informal conversation between the three of us about a topic highly inspired by y'all's witty banter. Nice. Uh, Anyway, because you guys are my muses, I would want to uh, wanted to ask if you had any advice for a baby bulldog podcaster uh, as an MMA major. I feel like I have the basic knowledge and resources for the technical side, but as far as what makes a good episode, I'm feeling pretty shaky. 
what is your environment like? How much do you prepare for the actual script? Do you have a specific formula for every episode? I'm fascinated. And that is Bailey Johnson. Uh, you got any advice? I will give you the same advice I would give anybody starting out in podcasting, Bailey. Get good mics. Mm-hmm. It's worth the expenditure. Make it sound good. And They probably have them on campus, I'm imagining. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, if you can finagle your way into a studio with good mics. Yeah, do it. Oh, yeah. Do whatever you need to do to get that done. Uh, and then release on a reliable schedule. That are Those are the two keys to, to begin with. I mean, like, as long as you're releasing on a reliable schedule, people will come to appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, and uh, my advice uh, as far as scripting goes is, you know, we've said this a billion times on different interviews, but we don't script stuff out and we don't go over stuff with each other. We just do our own research and try and have as natural a conversation as possible, which I think has helped our show out. That's not to say that you need to do that, but I think being relatable and... um, Conversational helps uh, rather than feeling like you're being read a script. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know a lot of people that would be as into that. So my advice would be try to make it conversational. Um, you know, maybe go over it with uh, whoever your co-host is some at first. She's a theater major, right? Yeah, you should be pretty good at this stuff already. So, yeah, I'm sure she's good at ad-libbing. She probably finds comfort in the idea of a script. I don't think there's anything wrong with starting out trying that, but if it doesn't feel right or you're not getting good feedback about it then try try something else yeah my my i guess i would say maybe try it like instead of a script try like an outline mm. um that That's you like share the, with each other the poor man's script yeah so you've got a little road map ahead of you and uh we kind of just we've been doing this for so long we don't need that we don't need an outline but uh, we have our own road map that we share via our brain waves yes it's roadmap not, to the white house it's just not written down 2016 so those are our points of advice. Um, we don't have a specific formula. We just try to talk about things that we find interesting. That's a, I think that's a key too, man. Yeah, be into what your own topic is because uh-huh. that'll show for sure. Yeah. Although we've also found that like just about everything is interesting if you dig hard enough. Everything True. has a story. Yeah. So if something's like really boring you, maybe abandon it, but you can also try digging harder. Agreed. So uh, good luck, Bailey. Send us a link when that's up, and we'll uh, plug it for you. And um, and since you're doing an interview show, your goal should be with each interview to make that person cry. <laughs> you know what, Bailey? I'll, I'll even be on your show if you want. Whoa. Ooh. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'll do that. If you get it up and running and you need somebody, I'd be happy to sit in. That is so nice. Why not? I will, too, if you want. I don't know if I'll go to Athens. Uh, yeah. Not that I don't like to, but it might just be easier to do it on the phone. Okay. We'll see. Bailey, he's laid it out there for you. <laughs> Get in touch. Uh, all right, Bailey, good luck. Uh, class of 17. That's crazy. Yep. Uh, who started listening in seventh grade. Goodness me. Uh, if you want to get in touch with uh, Chuck or I, uh, Chuck or me, yeah, Chuck or me, yeah. uh, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, stuffyoushouldknow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 